I think so much of Jung's work is his wrestling with Christianity. I think if you want to understand Jung, you need to have some understanding and engagement with Christianity. In understanding Christianity, I think it helps to know Jung because he gives us some language and some uh, perspectives that can't be had in other disciplines. At the same time, it was also necessary to be able to try to engage Christianity on its own terms, not, not on Jungian terms, but to try to meet it in terms of what it says it is and not just what Jung says it is. And so there's a, there's a tension in that. In wrestling with Christianity, I'm also wrestling with Jung. Welcome back to Psychology on the Cross. In this episode, I speak to Jungian analyst Jason E. Smith, author of the book Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. We discuss Jason's background as an actor, the difference between a religious attitude and religious belief, how he himself has navigated Jung and Christian faith, as well as individuation's relationship to the collective. For those of you interested in continuing following Sean McGrath's Seeking for Secular Christ, you need to subscribe to that podcast separately. But now, let's turn to my conversation with Jason, how he found to Jung and his work as a Jungian analyst. I came to Jung um, uh, almost by accident. My original background, my training, uh, what I went to university for was uh, the theater. Uh, so I trained in the theater. I was an actor. Uh, and so I was living and working as a professional actor for a while. And um, I was searching for something that would help me to be better at my craft, right? Something that would help me understand um, uh, how to portray my characters and human beings more fully and more authentically. Um, I didn't want an acting book. So I went into a bookstore and I was wandering around and I was looking at all of these books and I didn't know what I was looking for. I had no idea. And I saw this book, um, which I think was uh, uh, a popular sort of Jungian book called The Hero Within, Six Archetypes We Live By. Uh, I think it's Carol Pearson wrote that book. Um, and I had no idea what an archetype was. I had no idea w- that archetypes had anything to do with Jung. I had no idea even who Jung was. But I got this feeling immediately that I have to read that book. It was just a very strong sense of that's the book I have to read. Uh, and so I pulled it off the shelf and I bought it. and. Um, I was absolutely captivated by it. There was this whole experience of something beyond the everyday, these forces and and energies beyond sort of the visible world that just really grabbed me. It, it, It didn't help me at all become a better actor, but it planted this seed uh, that stayed with me. A couple of years later, I um, 
I was in a play and I was gifted another book. I was gifted a book by uh, about uh, Joseph Campbell. One of my fellow actors gave me the book. And again, I was totally gripped by it. And I started to read everything that I could find by Joseph Campbell. I just read and read and read for months, I think. Um, I would spend my whole days on the couch reading. And I started reading Jung. And again, I was absolutely captivated. And I knew that that was the world that I wanted to be a part of. I knew that that just was this very strong pull. I had this strong feeling of this is what I've got to do. And there is no way on this earth that I will ever get there. It's impossible to get from where I am to there. It seemed so far remote from who I was and what I was doing. I had no uh, training in psychology. I had no understanding of any of the things that Jung was talking about, mythology, religion, philosophy, alchemy. I mean, all of these were so far beyond me. Uh, I couldn't see a way there. But eventually I did. I went to to train. I went to train at uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute, um, which is where I met my wife and Eventually, uh, we moved to the East Coast. I was living on the West Coast. Um, and that's where I decided to enter into training at the, at the Boston Institute, the Boston Jung Institute. So I, I got there, um, but it was sort of step by step. It feels like it was with those books and with those uh, experiences, I really ex- feel it. it as having been a call. Um, I don't know why I had to pull that book off the shelf, Um, but I did. That was the one. And what about the the actor in you? Is is, is here still somewhat alive? Is there anything from that that you actually feel like you bring into the work with patients? Yeah, is the actor still alive? That's a great question. I mean, yes, of course he is. Uh, there's a certain performer sensibility that um, is with me. I, I think some of those skills that I picked up there serve me very well, obviously, uh, in different um, contexts. It's not so far theater and psychology. It's about human behavior. It's about understanding what makes people do what they do and what motivates them and in 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 the practice room uh, you become you know all these characters for your patients no when we think about acting sometimes we think it's it's not real no it's something fake but but i I think that's a very superficial view on acting i guess actually you're you're absolutely right um that view of acting as false or as um not not true is is superficial because um, the the role or the job, the craft uh, at its best is to be as real and as honest as possible, and it it's a dual consciousness, right? It's it, there's a 
it's both uh, being able to enter into deep states within yourself and at the same time to hold an objective view and to be able to witness it. So on stage, you would you need to know where am I going on stage? What are my lines? What, what's my next move? Where is the audience? In the, in the room with patients, it's, it's very similar, you know, to connect with some deep state, some deep experience that the other is having, to be able to empathically connect to that. Um, maybe through your own experience, but not to get caught in it, to, to also stay as the observer so that you, you're, you have a, a kind of um, uh, empathic exploration or identification with the other without getting lost in it. it. It also, I think, comes in in being able to help guide the other into the experience of their own symbolic universe what's that like what does it feel like you know to to help them enter into more embodied um imaginal states within themselves all of um well not all of but a lot of the the work with symbols like an active imagination with dream work involves a kind of similar suspension of disbelief that you get in the theater. Um, and Jung talks about the dream as sort of the theater of the mind, that the, the dreamer is the producer, the actor, the playwright. Um, mm. He uses that imagery. I, I wanted to sort of fast forward a bit to to present time and and now, and I mean I found out about you through the book that you released. Uh, yeah, it's now two years ago, two thousand twenty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that is religious, but not religious, uh, living the symbolic life. And right. could could you just start by sharing a little bit about what led you to 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 write the book and. Uh, Maybe something about the title as well. So with my coming to Jung, um, Jung gave me a language for understanding my own religious sensibility. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a, a, a very active religious upbringing at all. Um, but with, with my engagement with Jungian psychology, I was able to become aware that some of my experiences, my sensitivities, my responses to things had a religious character to them. And so that dimension of experience, which maybe in the past might have felt like a, uh, a dysfunction of some kind, uh, a shyness or a, 
or something like that, or a, a being too sensitive, or began to open up as, a, as having another dimension. And so the religious question became very interesting to me. But over time, uh, the religious experience, you know, in Joseph Campbell and in Jung uh, and in Jungian circles, it, it, it's often uh, um, there's this sense that religious symbols are just metaphors for something else. Uh, and I, I don't think this is necessarily Jung's position, but it, it's something that kind of comes out in, uh, in Jungian circles in general. And this idea that these experiences were, or the, the images, the symbols were only metaphors of something else wasn't enough for me at a certain point because I was experiencing them as having reality uh, of being very real. And so now I was uh, struggling with this question of what was the role of religion in my life and what was the role of this, this sensibility. And often in, uh, again, um uh the circles the the when i was in training there can be this sense in the religious or in the in the jungian community that jungian psychology is sort of an achievement beyond religion you 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 trans, transcend religion and you and you go to something more enlightened again there are traces in jung that suggest this and then there are traces in jung that counter this idea right um so I, I felt this tension between my Jungian self and my religious self and i was trying to work out these different aspects you know the book is about in part about me reconciling these different aspects of my nature uh the religious side but also um uh, an appreciation for um, some of the skepticism around some expressions of religion. And I was giving talks after, uh, uh, after my training when I had become an analyst. I was doing some public talks. And when I would talk on this subject, I had a talk called Religious But Not Religious. The response to those talks made it clear that this wasn't just my question that this was a question that had resonance for people. And, and that made me realize that it was worthy of a book in the sense that it wasn't just for me. It was something that uh, could have some more general interest. And it plays off, the title plays off of that idea of spiritual, but not religious. Um, and That's something that, you know, I've, I have some sympathy for, and I, I, I would have identified myself in that way at one point. But also, I, I recognize that there are aspects of the, the, the structure of religion, the discipline of religion, the, the institutions that have their own value, and that 
too often a spiritual but not religious sort of sensibility can be just taking what I like about the spiritual aspects that make me feel better and not the more difficult aspects that test you, that challenge you, that um, that make you uh, re-examine your own assumptions, your own experience. Uh, and so I, w- I wanted to convey something of that nature that that religion is it's a work. It's a it's a it's a discipline. It it's a challenge. In the introduction of the book, you're also sharing uh, a little bit from your personal journey and your 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 deep interest in in in, in Buddhism and in Taoism and and also then how how Christianity is uh, uh, coming into your life or the question that Christianity asks. And that there was at the beginning also some, uh, yeah, some uh, resistance or at least you know some uh, wrestling with that. Uh, I'm sure there still is, but um, I was curious, you know, because you 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 do share something very personal there. You're sharing a dream, right? And 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 and, and would you would you be fine with just reading the dream and then we can talk a little bit uh, about it? Yeah, I I I found myself at at certain points in my own experience uh, confronted with images in my dreams and in my experience that were specifically Christian. Um, and, and there may have been a part of me that wanted sort of um, generic Jungian archetypes to show up in my dreams. Um, but that's not how it happened. Uh, and so this, is, this was a, a, a kind of fundamental dream. Uh, And it went like this. I found myself going down a river on a boat. The boat came to a spot where the river forked in two directions. Somehow I knew that to the left was the path of Christianity. I could see that it was a dark, difficult path that led deep into a jungle. It was a hard path with lots of struggles and I felt afraid at the thought of entering it. To the right stretched the path of Buddhism, a sunny, open, and easy passage. I chose to go to the right. At first, I felt I'd made the wrong choice, but soon I set that feeling aside as I entered into a land filled with giant, smiling Buddha statues, hot air balloons, and oddly, several police officers but could you share with us also a little bit you know how you first interpreted the dream and, and then what sort of a purpose sense it got for you with time or how it grew on you my first um response to the dream was to feel very happy about my choice all right there's this choice between this dark difficult path of christianity and the easy passage to the land of Buddhism. And I felt very happy about it because I think consciously it was what I would have wanted. Um, Buddhism had more of a kind of uh, um, cool appeal uh, for me and uh, in, in the circles that I was moving. Uh, 
Christianity was associated with um, kind of evangelical, fundamental Christianity, uh, which I wanted nothing to do with. And so I thought, oh, here's a dream that just confirms that uh, that uh, that choice. But there's this kind of lingering doubt, right? Because there's a moment in the dream where I thought maybe I'd made the wrong choice. And maybe really, I knew I'd made the wrong choice. I made a, a, an easier choice to stay away from struggle and to go to something easy. Um, and so, you know, there was always this sense that something was missing, something was left behind, uh, uh, something wasn't right. Um, and that, I think that in itself is interesting to me that I had that experience. I could have easily just said, great, here's my choice and, and left it behind. But um, the fact that there was something nagging was... Uh, and it wouldn't let me go. And it wouldn't let me go. It wouldn't let me go in my dreams. It wouldn't let me go in my own reflections. And over time, as I reflected on it, I realized that the, the, the move or the, the choice to go to the land of Buddhism was a choice to go to a place where things were where I was looking for a happy, easy experience. I was not looking to be tested. I wanted to escape the challenges of life, really. I mean, religion at its best is a, a system for confronting and experiencing life as deeply as possible. And we can use it in a way that helps us avoid that, and we can use religion in a way to, and spirituality in a way to um, uh, bypass struggle, or we can use it in a way to wrestle with the angel, to, to struggle with, with life and um, to let the, the, the difficult things in. And so, over time, things like the hot air balloons became clearer to me, right? The hot air balloons are those things that lift off the ground and it, it's light and airy and it, it didn't have a, a grounding for me. It, it wasn't solid. Um, and the police officers, that, that strange image of the police officers led me to think that maybe there was something that, some development that was arrested in going down that road. And I, you know, I make this point in the book that this is not about Buddhism. This is not about the, the, the relative value of Buddhism because Buddhism is a, uh, can be a deep and rigorous path for people. And it can be a, a, a powerful system of transformation. For me, it was a path of avoidance. Uh, as, as, as much as I find value in it, it wasn't going to take me to the places I needed to go, which was that dark jungle, which were my own encounter with 
suffering, my own encounter, even with the difficulties around religion and Christianity and um, uh, some of the some of the symbolic imagery in it, some of the way that it's expressed, it's much more complicated to go into that that tradition, at least for me, um, and deal with my own ambivalence and deal with my own doubt and deal with being drawn to a world that, um, you know, has some pretty dark expressions, has, has had some, has done some damage in the world. It's responsible for great beauty and great pain in places. And that wrestling with all of that has been uh, part of the process. And, and was Jung as involved in that part of your process, you know, the wrestle with Christianity, or has it been then turning more to other sources, or is the combination? Um, well, yes. One of the things that I realized, you know, in, in my process was that before I could reject Christianity, I had to understand it, right? I had to engage it, and that meant engage it from inside. Um, and so going to Christianity was also, um, on the one hand, it was a kind of challenge to Jung in the sense that I couldn't just accept what he was saying about his experience with Christianity. I had to encounter it on my own. Um, I, I couldn't just decide that um, things that he said settled the issue. I needed to see where it was living. Jung gives me language uh, and Jung provides the model, I think, of wrestling with Christianity. Uh, I think so much of Jung's work is his wrestling with Christianity. I think if you want to understand Jung, you need to have some understanding and engagement with Christianity. You certainly need to read the Bible. Um, and I think it helps to understand uh in, in understanding Christianity, I think it helps to know Jung because he gives us some language and some uh, uh, perspectives that can't be had uh, in other disciplines. So he certainly provides a model. But, you know, at the same time that he gave, gives language, um, it was also necessary to be able to try to engage at Christianity on its own terms, not, not on Jungian terms, but to try to meet it in terms of what it says it is and not just what Jung says it is. And so there's a, there's a tension in that. In wrestling with Christianity, I'm also wrestling with Jung.
religious, but not religious, but, but, and the but not religious. Could you just clarify further, like, what is it we, you don't want to see or that you say, no, not? Yeah. It brings to mind uh, a story about uh, Alan Watts. I think it's told by Joseph Campbell. Uh, apparently, when Alan Watts would, was asked the question, do you believe in God? His response was something like, um, if you do, I don't. But if you don't, I do. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, that, that's a, uh, it's a bit, um, uh, you know, sarcastic. On the other hand, uh, I think the intention of that is that, we can't get caught too rigidly in the form that there is there is an element of that that um, has to stay open, that has to stay unknown. So, so the for me, the not religious comes around the sense of. Uh, 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 a very sort of strict, uh, orthodox view on, um, uh, or doctrinal view on something that, that that has to hold to this in a very literal way. Um, anything that gets too concrete, that gets too literal, starts to close out the transcendent. Right, God can't be known i think the alan watt story it's interesting but it's it's also highly to me personally problematic in a sense because it seems maybe it's out of context maybe but it seems almost also a rejection of the other or a, a wanting to differentiate you know the individual experience or putting that on such a, such an emphasis on that yeah i i i i take that point uh uh, absolutely. Um, I think there is a need for shared experience, uh, without question. Um, the challenge here, of course, is always that is always that the, the when we're talking about uh, religion, and when we're talking about God. We're talking about something that is fundamentally paradoxical. And so as soon as you say something about it, you have to kind of recognize that there's something else as well. Um, without question, we need collective experience. And this is one of the places that I think is, is a, 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 one of the deepest challenges of our age, right? Because we live at a time when um, we don't live in these small communities where um, uh, we are held within a, a simple tradition. We're, we live in a, a, a global experience where we're aware of all of these other experiences. We're aware of the Taoist experience and 
uh, of the Muslim experience and of Buddhism and Hinduism and uh, native spirituality. We're aware of all of these things and all of the scriptures are available uh, at a moment's notice, they're not hard to come by. Um, so how do we come to that place of collective experience, I think is one of the great challenges. It's, 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 it's an absolutely necessary element of religion. Um, Jung, in general, doesn't do well with the collective. That's not his strength. His strength is to talk about the the individual. Um, he talks about uh, the creed uh, in a very dismissive way, um, and uh, he talks about. Um, sort of the merely social aspect of uh, um, uh, attendance uh, or participation in in a religious service. Um, But we are social beings. We are collective beings, and and we can't be without some uh, shared process. And so that, you know, that the, the challenge of holding... Uh, both a, a kind of collective, a way of being able to communicate with each other, um, and also holding the uh, the the unique individual experience and making room for both of those. Uh, I think is is really, um, I think it's a great challenge. Reading your book was, uh, it felt really like a, a manifestation of this religious attitude. You know, the way that you've been reflecting. You felt very much how much you carefully observed these, uh, uh, mm. the, 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 what, what, what you have experienced and what you had read. One of the questions or something that was lingering that I, that I did sort of miss or that I was wondering about was this, uh, what we're talking about now, uh, the collective dimension and, and the question of, of, of the other, yeah? And, mm-hmm. and, and how these uh, yeah, individuals... Uh, struggles that we have ourselves you know, internally or in the analytical room, how this relates to, to, to these uh, other people who are not uh, in analysis or who are not uh, having the possibility of entering you know, into a Jungian process, for example. Um, and also previous in the podcast, also with others, you know, I discussed this, uh, uh, sometimes the lack of, uh, of, of the collective dimension in this uh, very individually focused uh, union uh, practice. And I was asking you also that question, you know, if, if there's a risk in, in reducing the, the religious to the, to the individual's uh, individuation. A quick answer to that, is there a risk of reducing 
the religious to the individual's individuation is yes, of course, there is a risk of that. There's a risk of um, making analysis uh, about my experience. There's a risk of making religion about only my experience. Um, we have the capacity to um, engage things in a narcissistic or solipsistic manner where it's just about my experience without question. Um, but I think personally that individuation is not in conflict with the larger goals of religion, the, the, the sense of the other, uh, the need for um, the care and concern of our brothers and sisters and, and uh, those who are suffering and those who are struggling. Um, and I think Jung knows this, frankly. I think Jung understands this. I think individuation is different than other forms of well-being, right? I, I think it's different than wellness. I think it's different even than some of the goals of psychotherapy. A, a lot of psychotherapy can aim towards um, healing the self, healing the individual. And that, that's, there's a great value in that, of course, right? Um, but Jung is very clear that analysis is not necessarily about a cure. And analysis does not lead to a state where uh, one is free of difficulties and, and challenges. And one of the things he says about individuation in particular is that individuation emphatically includes our fellow man. It is not a course of uh, individualism. And it doesn't result, he says, it doesn't result in spiritual aloofness where you pull yourself out of the collective and you are a law unto yourself. It emphatically includes our, uh, our fellow men, our fellow beings. Um, and he, he conceives of it as a vocation, right? And, and, and more than a path of well-being, it's a path of, uh, it can be a path of struggle and it can be a path of um, um, pain and suffering, but it's a path of becoming what one is Jung has a moment in his own biography where he, he has his moment of vocation where he realizes 
he's going to become a psychiatrist and that it holds these different threads of value in his life. Uh, and at one point there, he says, my life was no longer my own. I, I had no right to it anymore to, to, for it to be myself. So he sees that call as fulfilling some purpose that has a larger purpose. I found this letter recently where uh, uh, it's not in his collection of letters. It's in a private collection. And I found it online uh, where he talks about uh, someone's written him and asked him about how to live a happy life. And, and basically his response is, don't even try. If you try to live a happy life, you're going to be unhappy. And, and he says this, this great quote, he says, you better, you better ask where and how you could be useful to whom. So in order to live a fulfilled life, in order to live a happy life, you should ask where and how you should be useful to whom. Where is your place of service? Where is your place where you um, give yourself to the world? In the Christian tradition, I mean, there is a, there is a long history, I think, of um, holding the contemplation and action, or if we speak of prayer and work, you know, it's also in a monastic tradition, there is a, to find a, a good balance between the two. I guess I've been asking myself at times, you know, if we unions and Jung included are sometimes a little bit comfortable, you know, uh, there is something about, the, I remember a friend used this term not so positively about unions. She said a, a group of esoteric elitists. And I'm not saying that we all have to be political. You know, I think there's so much misguided, you know, politics, but but there is something about Jung and there is something about Jungianism and there is something about maybe even the emphasis, all this emphasis on the symbolic that I think at times might blind us for what is actually just in front of our face, you know, because we don't need to go far to see, we don't need to even go into the desert to see, you know, to, to see, you know, the, the, the state of the world. And what I guess that I find in, in, in Christ and in Christianity and in, in the symbol of Christ, uh, yeah, there is something there, you know, that I think uh, can also waken up, you know, to, to, to what reality is, what the reality is for all of us, uh, in, not individually, but all of us, the reality that we have been put into, which is yeah. a very... Uh, uh, tragic sort of, you know, image, uh, uh, tragic and hopeful at the same time? I think it's such an important question, right? I, I, and um, one of the frustrations I've had at times um, is that uh, there's, there's often this sense that Jungians are talking to themselves, talking amongst themselves. And uh, that there is there's a, a way in which we can use anything, whether it's Jungian psychology, whether it's Christianity, any kind of system, we can use it uh, as a means of substitution 
or we can use it as a means of transformation. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, Jung says, he says, some people like to get, it's one of his seminars, he, he, he's talking to his, a group of uh, uh, his students, and he says, some people get a, a psychological term, and they cling to it, and they say, that's it, and they stop. And he says, we always have to remember that psychology is only a stammering stopgap measure in order to be able to talk about life at all, right? We're not dealing with psychology. It's not about uh, proving that Jungian psychology is right. If Jungian psychology doesn't lead us into life, if it doesn't um, bring more life, uh, then uh, um, we're missing the point. And, and, to, and the substitution, right, is that um, uh, I, have, I have a phrase, I have an idea, and um, now uh, I don't really have to kind of uh, um, uh, struggle with the, the, the consequences of that idea, or I might, maybe I want to change something out there, or, you know, now I know why that person needs help or that person is uh, uh, wrong or something like that. To take it as a means of transformation means, you know, something has to change. This has to affect me. This has to, to open me up in some way. Yeah, w- without that, um, that kind of... Uh, coming back and bringing things back into the world. And, uh, you know, that reminds me too, that Jung, Jung talks about this as well. He says that individuation um, has uh, an element of guilt attached to it. That when a person starts to individuate, that that process pulls them out of the collective for a time. and for that to not be an immoral act, one must produce new values. So out of the work of individuation, you must come back to the world with something. There must be something that uh, adds uh, to our experience that alleviates uh, suffering that, you know, frees the prisoners um, and gives sight to the blind, so to speak. I mean, to use some of that Christian language. And I remember that paper, yeah, individuation uh, and adaptation, or how is it? Right. Yeah. It's, no, it's not called that, but something along those lines. But to me, that's also very much the sort of... Uh, Nietzschean uh, Jung, yeah, the sort of bring new values into life, and there's something beautiful that there is something to that, but it's also, you know, yeah, I guess I often come back to this question of, you know, so imitatio Jung versus imitatio Christ, you know, they they represent two different ways of life, and of course Jung had his take also on that, on what that meant, you know, imitatio Christ, that's, that's you know, to live your life. There is something about following Christ 
versus following Jung, you know, as a light, as, 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 yeah, as an imitation. And there is something of the lack, the, the complete lack, I would say, of, of, of speaking around of the poor in Jung and in Jungianism. If we speak about the poor or poverty, there's a, there, there's a, there's, there's a lack there that I, I don't, you know, uh, that, 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 that bothers me. Because you know, I live in a city like in Berlin here, where you see that you, you see the poverty, you see it, you see it everywhere. I mean, it's it's a developed country and all of it, but you see, yeah, you see the homeless people, and and I think at times, you know, there's just this risk of this uh, internalizing things too much. You know, you see a homeless guy in your dream, and it's your homeless part of yourself, and you know, there's something to that, but there's also something about experiencing reality i mean can we even experience reality as it is outside of our our castles you know it, it or is it too terrible was it yeah. too terrible for for jung to face the reality of, of what 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 he experienced experienced in his lifetime i struggle with this and i struggle with what happens to christ you know in jung's uh, wrestle with christianity yeah you know there's this dream in memories dreams reflection where He's following his father, and they, and when he's gonna bow, and there's the one millimeter between Jung and the ground, and but he knows right. that he's gonna be taken to the highest presence. And what is right. that highest presence? It's it's the suffering Uriah. It's the suffering man who was betrayed. Who that's that's what what, what he meets. That's the highest presence. There's no right. glory there. There is just a man suffering. So and and then there's Jung's interpretation of that dream. And there's also Wolfgang Giger's critique. I have had a discussion with him around that lately. And, and, and uh, yeah, and it, somehow around there, I think Jung, um, I cannot walk with him. Hmm. There's so much to say about that. Uh, and I, I honestly don't know. Um, how much. Uh, I can contribute to that, but uh, there are a couple thoughts and reflections that come up. Um, I was thinking about that dream that you mentioned, Jung and the one millimeter, and there is something there about not being able to put his forehead on the ground, not being able to submit. There's a, there's a way in which he holds back. And I think about the, you know, it makes me think about, well, there's a couple, couple of thoughts that come around. One is that idea of uh, it's not the end of the road. Um, you know, I, I've experienced that in my own life, that there have been times, there have been experiences, particularly in my own suffering, where Jungian psychology can't help me. It can't uh, save me. There's no place uh, of, of that. There's a limit there. Um, and that's where the, the religious, where Christianity, uh, um, has come in in a, in a powerful way 
that that there are things that uh, can be met um, places at a level of suffering that can be met uh, that are I couldn't get there personally through Jung as as much as I you know find profound value in 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 Jung's work you know and I I wonder how much this you know the part of the the issue revolves around you know that question that you've also kind of explored a lot in in your podcast around Jung's notion of I know versus uh you know belief I, I don't believe I know, right? The, that thing that he says in the interview. And of course, a lot depends on what Jung means by knowing, what, what that even means. Um, and we could speculate in a lot of directions and, and, and we could probably spend hours kind of exploring that. But one of the things about knowing the insistence on knowing, it's problematic because, you know, my own take on this is, is knowledge and faith and belief are not distinct things, that there's this interplay between them. Uh, they can't be separated ultimately from each other. But knowing insists on the I. I have to know. If I don't know, I won't submit. I can't put my head down. I have to know. Um, and, and belief or faith has a way of taking a risk and, 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 and aiming beyond oneself and um, kind of aiming towards a horizon of sorts that can't be ultimately known, but a kind of risk of walking into that. And, and, and for me, this place of the relational dimension, the relational dimension of knowing or the relational dimension of faith, the relation to Jesus, the relation to God, uh, if you can enter into that space, um, which is a much more personal and a much more intimate space, then the then the it opens up avenues of relationship to the rest of the world, to our our ourselves, to our fellows, to the people closest to us, to people far from us. Um, so if it's, if it's knowing from a, a, that other place of, I have to know, um, that keeps us somewhat safe and protected from life. But the moment you enter into a relationship, whether it's with you, your friend, your partner, your spouse, or your God, 
you are vulnerable and you are open to uh, suffering because now their experience becomes your experience and you cannot differentiate between the two. And, and I, it feels like that's the kind of place that is so important to, to be able to, to risk. Thank you.